Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing, sir? Good. I always love talking with you about the scriptures. I say that every time. But one thing I like is bringing something new to the text, because if we always just hear the same things, well, what good does that do? I want to always be interesting and share some insight that people have never seen before and... Uh, yeah, so I don't want people to get bored with this podcast. Like, there's a sense in which we say the same thing every week, like, love God, love your neighbor. Uh-huh. But then there's a thing that should be new. Like, someone said, I learn something from your podcast every week. I'm like, that's how church is supposed to be, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway. I agree. I kind of liken it to general conference a little bit in that while I feel like we do come back to the same points on a fairly regular basis, just given the nature of what we discuss on this podcast, I do feel like people need to hear it and know that the things that we talk about, which are new to the general church population, are actually repeated throughout the sacred texts. And we're actually going to see that in today's lesson. So what do you think? Should we... uh, jump into it yeah let's jump in there's a lot i have a lot to say so <laughs> yeah there there's a lot going on here um but before we do that just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the dialogue podcast network a collective of independent interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful respectful and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the lds tradition thought arts and culture find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network that's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay, so this week we are going to be in Doctrine and Covenants sections 41 through 44. Now, at this point, Joseph and Sydney, they have arrived to Kirtland. This is, uh, I guess, 41 that we're going to start with. And uh, they're homeless. They're trying to figure out where they're going to live and all that stuff. They've been invited to uh, live with. Uh, this guy who's mentioned in, I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name, Lied, Lehman Copley. I'm going to go with that. He invited them to live with him and to give them provisions. And uh, that more or less prompted Joseph Smith to uh, seek this revelation on where they should be living, what they should be doing. We also get the first call of the first bishop in uh, Edward Partridge in this section as well. And uh, we'll go ahead and start with that much before we move on to these other sections, because there are some things that are going to be happening in 43 and 44 that don't necessarily relate to what's happening in 41. So if I may, Derek, I'd like to start with a brief conversation on this verse in uh, section 41. Is that all right? Yeah. Okay. The Lord is telling the people that uh, by the prayer of faith, you shall receive my law that you may know how to govern my church and have all things right before me. This is what we're going to get in section 42. And uh, the prayer of faith is something Mm -hmm. that we need to consider simply because this is not going to be the only time, certainly not the last time, we are going to hear that phrase, the prayer of faith, and what it has to do with church government. So just as you read through these verses, keep that in mind. I would like to also highlight what is said at the end of verse two hearken o ye elders of my church whom i have called behold i give unto you a commandment that ye shall assemble yourselves together to agree upon my word now perhaps i'm reading into this a little bit much or reading into this the wrong way but something that stood out to me immediately was that uh this just kind of seemed to go a little bit contrary to what was given in the law of common consent. Like the Lord almost seems to be saying, this is my law. You guys are coming here not to debate about it. You're coming here not to have a conversation about it. You're coming here to agree upon the word. Now, perhaps there's a little more nuance here that I didn't make the time to fully appreciate, but just the fact that the Lord is telling them you are coming here to agree upon my word already lets us know that the way the church is going to be run is going to be very countercultural to what is happening in America at this particular time. In fact, once we get to section 42, we are going to see several countercultural elements of church government that are going to I'm sure they would shock the saints, and they definitely would shock us today a little bit. But uh, right off the bat, in section 41, verse 2, 
we get hints that this government or the way the church is going to run is going to be very different from how the world would run things or how worldly governments would run things. Uh, Do you got any thoughts about that immediately, Derek? Yeah, I think it depends on what this process of coming to agreement looks like. If is it is it an authentic path to agreement or is it a synthetic fake agreement, right? Yeah, that's what I want to know. It's kind of like what Dr. King said about peace and justice. It's not agreement unless it's real agreement, unless uh-huh. people have done the work to assemble together, which implies conversation. Like, what's the whole point of an assembly if there's no conversation? You could yeah. have just, like, individually affirmed something. They're mm-hmm. supposed to assemble together to talk about it and to come to an agreement. And I'm imagining that that's, or I think it should be an authentic process of coming to a legitimate and sincere agreement. Just to say you agree, it's, it's kind of like those things that I agree to uh, that I never read, those user terms and conditions. I just <laughs> click agree. Like, yeah. I don't read those. Like, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not going to agree to, I'm going to, I have all this software that I've agreed to something that I don't know what it is. That is not what we should do in the church. We're not supposed mm-hmm. to just ratify something without thinking through it, without talking about it, without assembling. And I think that's where what I'm sort of taking from this text. All right. So I want to get to this verse five because there's some interesting language here. I'm just going to go ahead and read it real quick. This is 41 verse five. He that receiveth my law and doeth it, the same is my disciple. And he that saith he receiveth it and doeth it not, the same is not my disciple and shall be cast out from among you. I just want to read that last one, that last part again. He that saith he receiveth it and doeth it not, the same is not my disciple. Last week or uh, the week before, I don't remember which one it was, but I remember talking about my experience of giving a talk on racism two years ago and people praising me for my words. And I think I said something about uh, getting the impression that the people I spoke to didn't think my words were for them. They were saying things like, that mm-hmm. was a great talk. We definitely got to put racist people in their place. And I remember thinking to myself, no, this talk was for you. This talk was to you. This talk was about you. You know I'm talking to you and about you, right? And I just remember thinking to myself, oh, and one more thing that uh, somebody said that I will never forget. Somebody came up to me. I don't remember who it was, but they said something along the lines of, thank you for that. Keep fighting. And I just remember thinking to myself, I don't think you got it. Because since then, this person, I don't think, has really done anything to really put some Mm -hmm. skin in the game of anti-racism. And this is something I always wonder anytime I have this conversation. What are people going to end up doing as a result of these words that I share with them? Is this going to motivate them to do any kind of justice work? Are they going to see in themselves the parts that need to be discarded because they dehumanize others and do something about that? You know? Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what particularly gets me is when people hear me, I know they understand me, but they don't end up doing anything about it, which leads me to wonder, have they actually received what I said? Which is why I really appreciate this language that is written in verse five. He that saith he receiveth it and doeth it not. Not he that receiveth it and doeth it not. He that saith he receiveth it and doeth it not. The Lord is making a distinction here that to receive the word is to do it. You can't receive the word and not do it. Because if you receive the word and not do it, then you didn't actually receive the word. It's kind of like that faith without works is dead proverb that we get in James. This is a similar Mm -hmm. proverb in saying that we cannot say that we are receiving the word of Christ if we are not willing to do it. And I see the same thing, especially in a racial justice context where I don't believe people have truly received the maxim of Black Lives Matter if they are not willing to actually do something about that. I don't think you are really receiving the message of justice if you aren't doing something in a consistent and honest way that says, I have received Black Lives Matter as an eternal truth, as a modern day beatitude, and I will do something about it. To receive a word is to to, to receive a word is to do something about that word. And I just found right. it really interesting that that language was made here in uh, verse five. 
We say all the time, all are alike unto God, but then we don't do it. Right. Then we don't do it. You know, so we say it, but my people are second-class citizens in the church. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like one, but I am one. When are we going to live into all or alike unto God in terms of, of gender or orientation or gender identity or disability? All of these things, uh, gender is even listed right there in, in 2 Nephi 26 as one of the things, male and female, all mm-hmm. are alike unto God. Mm-hmm. Like, why are they not all alike unto the priesthood? Or mm-hmm. all alike unto leadership opportunities, or all alike unto anything in the church. Like mm-hmm. we're so genderly segregated and discriminatory. How can we actually say we're going to do it? We say we received it, and then we don't do it. Right. This very idea, this principle of receiving the word and doing it, this is going to kind of come up several times once we get to 42 with regard to the law, because the law is long. Like 42 is one of the longest sections in the Doctrine and Covenants, so much so, and there it is chock full of doctrine. There is so much going on here, so much uh, wisdom, so much, so many gospel principles in here, and uh, we're expected to live into all of them. So uh, mm-hmm. I don't really have anything left for 41 that I care to discuss, uh, if you don't, I am more than okay moving to section 42. I just wanted to say one thing real quick. What yeah. you said reminded me a lot of the parable of the two sons found in Matthew chapter 21. And this is the one where, and the context is about the inclusion of the toll collectors and the sex workers, how they're included, and then the religious leaders aren't. Because the parable is uh, that a man has two sons. One of the sons says, I'm going to go work in the vineyard and then didn't. The other one said, nope, I'm not going to work. And then, and then did it and then worked. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the, um, the one who actually did the, the work, apart from what they superficially said that they weren't, is the ones who were uh, doing the will of the father. Mm. I'm excited to talk about section 42 like i'm only gonna this is gonna be weird but i'm only gonna have time to talk about one word yeah (laughs) in all of section 42 we shall see so stay tuned (laughs) all right so um let's go to 42 this is the law that was promised in 41 as well as uh, section 38 something that uh stood out to me in these verses not necessarily revelatory here but perhaps because of what is going on this week, I thought to myself that we as a church focus less on teaching the principles of the gospel found in the scriptures and more on the teachings about the principles which are filtered through imperfect people to sometimes say things that the scriptures don't actually say to the detriment of others, usually people that are already dispossessed in some way. What do you think about that? Yeah, and it reminds me of something I've maybe said elsewhere is for a lot of what we're what we're supposed to be is Christianity, uh-huh. but what a lot of us members do is churchianity. Churchianity, yes, sir. Yes, and so what it's supposed to be is it's the religion of the church about Jesus, but many twist it into the religion of Jesus about the church. Like Jesus is talking about the church, and Jesus is uh, focusing on the church, and Jesus is all about just pointing us to the church. I'm like, no, the church points us to Jesus, not the other way around. So we right. should be the, the religion of the church about Jesus and not the religion of a Jesus about this church. So I guess the one thing I want to say about 42 is that there are several commandments in addition to the law of consecration are set forth. And something that's worth noting is that the Lord ties the commandments to the first Uh, Great commandment in verse 29. I'll just go ahead and read this verse here. If thou lovest me, thou shalt serve me and keep all my commandments. And this he does immediately after stating some of the Ten Commandments and right before setting forth the law of consecration, beginning with the instruction to remember the poor. Our following these commandments is is a natural outgrowth of our love of God. And I just like how in this section in uh, verse 29, 
that that is pointed out, that once again, people, the Lord is tying all commandments that he wants us to obey, including the law of consecration, to the first great commandment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something in my commandment enumeration project, which is going to take a long time and I haven't gotten very far, but I'm tying every one of these commandments saying like, how does it actually embody love for God or love for neighbor? Because if it doesn't, then we have, we've missed the point of that particular commandment. Mm-hmm. So uh, the rest of this, or a lot of this after verse 29 is about uh, the law of consecration and how it is to be administered. And when I was uh, doing some research for this particular section, I noticed that there's a lot of essays and even a whole book written about uh, section 42 as a law of the church and even as a social justice text, which you know mm-hmm. made perfect sense to me because, again, economic justice is a big part of the law of consecration. Something that Derek actually pointed out several episodes ago, I think back when we were discussing the Book of Mormon, is something that's said in verse 33, which is that every man who has need may be amply supplied and receive according to his wants. And I think the last time we discussed this was in the conversation on uh, King Benjamin's words in the Book of Mormon, Mosiah 1 through 4, I believe the conversation Mm -hmm. was about, but where everybody was to be administered according to their wants. I thought that was really interesting. I didn't go back and listen to the episode to hear what you had to say about that, Derek, but uh, I know you had some insight about the fact that the word once is used here. Do you want to re, uh, re- repeat those thoughts before we move on? Well, I probably was tying it to the initiative of the individual and saying, well, what does this person want? What does this person need? What does this person determine self-determined and this is this is really valid for lgbt folks or disabled folks who ha- who have the right to articulate what it is that they need and i think this uh this whole business about consecration and mutual support isn't like icing on the cake it's not like we're doing this whole churchianity thing and then oh this is little an extra icing on the cake that we care about each other that is that's the whole cake yeah like this is an embodiment of Jesus. We are representing Jesus to the world. We are the image of Jesus. We are the body of Christ like that that is what it is. It, that's what it's about. That brings me to uh, verse forty five and I kind of had to freeze when I read this verse. Uh, obviously, this hit me a little bit different, and you'll see why when I read it. so uh, Ooh, let me yeah. just go ahead and read it. But this commandment from uh, Christ here, thou shalt live together in love insomuch that thou shalt weep for the loss of them that die, and more especially for those that have not hope of a glorious resurrection. So I had to pause once I read this part, that thou shalt weep for the loss of them that die, because I realized how little love there was among us. You know, I don't like throwing around words like love when it comes to racial justice work because too often it comes across as a sanctimonious triviality, to quote MLK. Too many people quote this word not really knowing what it means. And I think I said this a while ago, but like in all of our conversations about love, about the first and second great commandment, in teaching primary children to sing, as I have loved you, love one another, has this really translated into any kind of justice efforts for people on the margins. Now, I agree with uh, the assessment that we should live together in love, but again, too many folks don't really know what love means or what it looks like. The Lord does offer clarity here, though, when he says, thou shalt weep for the loss of them that die. And on social media, yo, um, (laughs) I've been seeing... I don't know if you've been seeing it, but I've been seeing a quote go around. Mm. I don't I don't know if Shannon Sharp was the original person to say it, but he was the first person I heard say it. The quote was, uh, if you have a black friend and you don't understand their pain right now, you don't have a black friend. You simply know a black person. Mm, yeah. Yeah. One of my friends on social media who has become more vocal in her advocacy, and uh, you know, I'm proud of her because I know this is hard, But she has a lot of uh, friends who appear to not feel the same way that she does. And I was appalled at how many people took exception to such a quote. Now, obviously, they were convicted by it and the guilty take the truth to be hard. But uh, in the moment I was reading some of the comments on that thread, I was like, yo, this is the problem right here. 
black people die and there's no empathy. Black people die and people don't know how to weep with those who weep. Mm-hmm. There's no love. Mm-hmm. People don't know that love is weeping for the life of for the lost life of those who are supposed to be our family. Like, wouldn't you weep for the loss of somebody you loved, for a friend or for a family member or for, you know, a community member that was just mourning? Right. Like, this is right in line with the commandments in Mosiah to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. It's right in line with the commandment in Romans 12 to weep with those who weep. Like, this should not be a difficult Mm -hmm. thing, but just something that was clear to me, especially after reading this verse, was just... This is the problem. People don't know what love for the black community looks like, you know, because when people in our community die and we mourn and we weep and then people don't know how to mourn and weep with us, but they come in trying to be a devil's advocate, trying to intellectualize things, trying to explain away our feelings or talk about how these people who died had it coming Like, these are not people that get to say they love everybody. These are not people that get to say or call for love and unity. These are not people who get to say anything about what Jesus would do in this situation or talk about how what we need in this world is more love. What you got to do, if you can't weep with people who are weeping, if you can't mourn with people who are mourning, if you can't weep for the loss of them that die, I don't think you really know what love is in this context. I don't think right. you know the love that is being spoken of by our Savior. Yeah, speaking of the Savior's example, it says, thou shalt, lo- thou shalt weep for the loss of them that die. That's a commandment. And I think we mm-hmm. in the Latter-day Saint world have this sort of artificial and toxic positivity around, oh, if someone dies, you're just supposed to put on this happy face and say, oh, well, we're going to be together forever anyway. It's no yeah. big deal. Yeah. Like, we're just going to skip over the death part and talk about this, you know, being together forever. And that's fine because you know mm-hmm. you're still you know you're still married, right? If your spouse dies, you know you're sealed. <laughs> you're, you're not, nothing really happened, right? Bro. And that's not what Jesus did in Bethany in John chapter 11 with the death yeah. of Lazarus. Yeah. He, Jesus wept. Jesus, and I I've, I first thought like, well, why is Jesus weeping? Because Jesus knows Lazarus is just going to pop right back up like one of those, um, those whack-a-mole things. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, just, he knows uh, he has the power to bring yeah. him back. So th- I think the reason why he's weeping is because... He's weeping with the others. He yes. wants to let them know yes. that it's okay. He wants to yes. validate their pain. Yes. Because they didn't know that Lazarus was going to pop up. Yes. Jesus sat with them, mourned with those who were mourning, wept with those who were weeping to validate their pain. And we need to uh, do the same for our black siblings. That is right, man. I do want to move on to something that stood out to me in verses uh, 48 through 52. I think Katie and Serena might have something to say about uh, these particular verses this week. Yeah, I really want to hear what they say about this. Yeah, absolutely. But there's some language in these verses I'm still wrestling with. Um, But I believe something, I found something worth acknowledging here. These are verses 48 through 52. And uh, in case you haven't been listening to their show at Holy Human, One thing that I was made to consider more deeply is what disability looks like to mortals and what it looks like to God. The idea was put forth on one of their episodes, if if not more of their episodes, that heaven isn't necessarily a place where our disabilities are erased, but rather a place where they are accommodated. That which makes people like that, which makes people consider us disabled here won't be considered disabled in the eternities because provisions to provide the same accessibility Mm -hmm. as everyone else will exist there. Now, I want to focus on verse 52 primarily, as I feel like this is a commandment to create a society where such a thing is a reality. But 48 through uh, 51 provides some context. And again, puts forth language that I'm still wrestling with a bit. So, uh, you know, take this reading with a grain of salt. I'm still trying to uh, understand this. Yeah, and... I think that the surface of the text here is is quite challenging because it says, he who hath faith to see shall see. Mm -hmm. And first of all, that doesn't always happen, right? 
Right. There can be people who 100% believe that they're going to be healed of whatever disability or affliction. They truly believe it, and then, then they're devastated. That's a crash. We're going to talk about crash theory later. And then there's this assumption here that people with a disability want to be fixed, and some of them do and some of them don't, right? Yeah. Um, looking at the social model, I... It, uh, this echoes what you, with what you're saying about, well, maybe there's an alternative thing. So you could say in vor- verse 49, he who hath faith to see shall see. The question is, are they going to be seeing the way everyone else sees? Or are they going to be having, they're going to see in the sense of they're going to have access to the same thing. It's going to look a little bit different. It's going to be a little bit different. It's going to be a different path. But the access will be the same. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the miracle, right? Maybe. We were talking about the greater miracle later. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't want to say, and I want to hold these things too lightly mm-hmm. because I don't want to um, say the wrong thing. But I think yeah. just having this text and reflect, reflecting on it in light of the experiences of disabled folks and listening to them—that's the best thing we can do. Is just use this as a as a prompt to wrestle with this. And there's a there's wrestle wrestle we have to do. Let's go ahead to verse 69 and 42. This is going to be tough because I'm I'm going to speak on just one word here, and it's the word keys. And I'm going to probably speak over half an hour on this, so I don't know how we're going to cut this down. But here's the verse. It says, um, this is 42, verse 69. Lift up your hearts and rejoice, for unto you the kingdom, or in other words, the keys of the church have been given. Even so, amen. And I'm going to be talking about this word keys. Let's talk about keys as authority. If I I, hand over to you the keys of my car, can I drive it while you have the keys? Can I drive it while you are in the driver's seat with the keys in the ignition? I think once we've handed over the keys to someone, we've delegated mm -hmm. the decision-making, the authority, because you could have some other model for authority. He could have said, well, you're going to, I'll give you this king's scepter, and it's only symbolic, and the king retains all the authority. You just have this scepter. But no, it's keys. Like, if you've got the keys, you get to decide. You're you're in the driver's seat, really. That's That's mm-hmm. what's happening. And so God hands over the keys to us, and that is empowering. It's bold, and it's... It's a mess. It can be complicated. <laughs> and of course, this is an echo of Matthew 16, verse 19. And I will give unto thee, speaking to Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And uh, Jesus is saying, look, Peter, you're in the driver's seat. Whatever you do, that's going to be done in heaven. Like you say it and it and it is. And that is tough to wrap your head around. Now, I'd like to share a story from the Talmud about God, in a sense, turning over the keys to God's people, decision-making, authority, uh, religious continuity of the tradition, all these things. So in order to do this, I'm going to have to introduce a bunch of things. Alrighty. So first of all, let's talk about the Talmud. The Talmud is a very large, very large set of collection of texts uh, coming from the late antiquity to the Middle Ages in rabbinic Judaism. Stories of wrestling with the text, wrestling with the received tradition, recording minority reports, rec- recording the rulings of various rabbis. And so that is a very foundational document for rabbinic Judaism. All then right. I'm going to talk about the, the word halacha, which means really Jewish law. So you've got sort of other principles like ethical principles, obligations, all these other things, but then how do you actually implement it? What is the what is the ruling? Like, how do you know whether this particular thing is kosher or not? Whether this is permitted or not? Like, where do you actually practically draw those lines? And that's the body of Jewish law called halakha. Now let's talk about Rabbi Eliezer and the Sanhedrin. So Rabbi Eliezer was on the Sanhedrin. This is about, I think, the second or so century of the Common Era. The Sanhedrin was the decision-making body, and they did it by majority rule. That is, you got all these people with different opinions, and then whenever they would make a ruling on something, the majority 
prevailed. And in this case, Rabbi Eliezer was not in the majority. He was uh, in the minority, and that led to some drama. Okay. So speaking of some of these things and the way of interpreting Torah, I need to also talk about the background of two verses in the Torah. The first one is Deuteronomy 30, verse 12. And this is the one that says, Lo bashemayim he, it is not in heaven. And the context here is, God is explaining that, you know, this, this, these commandments I'm giving you are not too hard. It's not far away. It is not in heaven, as though you need to go up to heaven to get it. It's not across the sea, as, as if you had to go across the sea to get it. But it's, it's very near to you. It's in your mouth. It's in your mind. It's in your heart. So you can do it. What it's saying is the commandment is accessible. That is, it is, has divine authority. It's coming from heaven. But you don't have to go to heaven to fulfill the commandment. You, you can do it here. Okay. So that's where it is. It is not in heaven. Then there's this Exodus 23, verse 2, which ironically is about unity. We were talking about earlier the, the unity. Yeah. And here's what it says. It's this provision generally in a legal context, it says, you shall not follow a crowd in doing evil, and you shall not bear false witness so as to side with the majority. So basically, mm. if, if everyone else is uh, testifying to something and that's not the right thing, and, and you actually have the truth, you shouldn't just change your testimony to agree with the majority. Mm -hmm. so, and then same thing with not following a crowd in doing evil. Now here's something very interesting about this. You shall not bear false witness so as to side with the majority. Some of the rabbis literally just took the last three the last three Hebrew words, Achare Rabim Lehatot, and said side with the majority. <laughs> That's what they said. They just took mm -hmm. those three words from the end of the verse, quoted them in isolation and said, side with the majority. And we're going to get to that later. And this is one of the okay. bases for the majority rule in the Sanhedrin. Now, I was studying the Mishnah in Hebrew with a group of Jews and noticed something very interesting. Is that frequently the uh, Mishnah would quote a verse from Torah. And I, I know the, the text well enough to know what's going on. And, and here's how it would have landed in its historical context. And here's how, it land, how, how it's situated in its own context, in the literary context, and what it's doing in the text. And they're playing a particular game of like just the coincidence of the wording. They hit on that and did something playful with it. Or did so, it, looks, it looks like they just quoted it out of context. In a, and so I asked my Jewish friends, I said, what were they doing there? Like, did they just not get the text? Did they, um, did they know that they were quoting it out of context? Did they just not even realize that that's not what it meant? Hmm. And my friend Rabbi Brian Mann said, look, these were very, very learned rabbis. They were not naive. So if you see something in the text, so did they, right? If you can see it doesn't fit the text, like they're, they're not, ignorant of that either they know exactly what they're doing they're aware like if it's obvious to you it's obvious to them and mm -hmm. so what they're not doing they're not playing the game of oh we're gonna quote it according to its historical critical intent mm -hmm. so that's kind of what's going on here uh now i need to talk about the oven of achnai and this is a new type of oven that was sort of they had to decide, okay, here's a new oven that's, um, now does this new kind of oven transmit impurities or not? Because a whole oven, uh, a solid vessel, will transmit impurities, but one that's broken will not. And you've got this special kind of oven that now is made of pieces that are cemented together. And so that's the dispute here in the Sanhedrin where Rabbi Eliezer comes down in the minority position. And then there's okay. this one last thing I need to explain, and it's this Hebrew phrase, Hakadosh Baruch Hu, which is one of the most sacred euphemisms for God, uh, and that's the Holy One, blessed be He. And so instead of just saying the word God, they will actually make it even more sacred by saying the Holy One. And so you've got a very solemn word for, for a term for God there. So now let me go into, now we're going to talk about this. And this is from the Talmud, Bava Metziah 59a and b. 
And here's what it says. If one cut an earthenware oven widthwise into segments and placed sand between each and every segment, Rabbi Eliezer deems it ritually pure. Because of the sand, its legal status is not that of a complete vessel, and therefore it is not susceptible to ritual impurity. And the rabbis, this is the, this is the majority, and the rabbis deem it ritually impure as it is functionally a complete oven. And this is known as the oven of Achnai. The Gemara asks, what is the relevance of Achnai, a snake, in this context? Rav Yehuda said that Shmuel said, it is characterized in that manner due to the fact that the rabbis surrounded it with their statements like this snake, which often forms a coil when at rest, and deemed it impure. The sages taught on that day when they discussed this matter, Rabbi Eliezer answered all possible answers in the world to support his opinion, but the rabbis did not accept his explanations from him. Hmm. So he, he made all the logical arguments, all these mm -hmm. legal and logical arguments, and those didn't prevail against the majority of the Sanhedrin. Ain't that nothing. Yeah, and so it says, after failing to convince the rabbis logically, Rabbi Eliezer said to them, if the halakha is in accordance with my opinion, this carob tree will prove it. And so here the rabbi does a miracle. The carob tree was uprooted from its place 100 cubits and some say 400 cubits. The rabbi said to him, one does not cite halachic proof from the carob tree. Uh, rabbi Eliezer then said to them, if the halakha is in accordance with my opinion, the stream will prove it. The water in the stream turned backwards and began flowing in the opposite direction. They said to him, one does not cite halachic proof from a stream. Rabbi Eliezer then said to them, if the halacha is in accordance with my opinion, the walls of the study hall will prove it. The walls of the study hall leaned inward and began to fall. Rabbi Yehoshua scolded the walls and said to them, if Torah scholars are contending with each other in matters of halacha, what is the nature of your involvement in this dispute? The Gemara relates, the walls did not fall because of the deference of due Rabbi Yehoshua, but they did not straighten because of the deference to Rabbi Eliezer, and they still remain leaning. Rabbi Eliezer said then, then said to them, if the halacha is in accordance with my opinion, heaven will prove it. Okay, this, now, people, most of my listeners probably don't know where this story is going, so you might think, oh, here's, here's he's going to fix it now. It's, it's all going to get fixed. So, Rabbi Eliezer said, heaven will prove it. Then a divine voice emerged from heaven and said, I wish I could do your voice. Why are you differing with Rabbi Eliezer as the halacha is in accordance with his opinion in every place that he expresses an opinion? So God said it, right? Mm -hmm. Rabbi Yehoshua stood on his feet and said, it is written, quote, it is not in heaven from Deuteronomy thirty twelve. The Gemara asks, what is the relevance of the phrase, it is not in heaven, in this context? Rabbi Yermaya says, since the Torah was already given at Mount Sinai, and we do not regard a divine voice, as you already wrote at Mount Sinai in the Torah, after a majority to incline. This is what I translated earlier as, hmm. side with the majority. Mm -hmm. Exodus 23.2. Since the majority of rabbis disagreed with Rabbi Eliezer's opinion, the halakha is not ruled in accordance with his opinion. The Gemara relates, years after, Rabbi Natan encountered Elijah the prophet and said to him, what did the Holy One, blessed be he, do at that time when Rabbi Yehoshua issued his declaration? Elijah said to him, the Holy One, blessed be he, smiled and said, my children have triumphed over me. My children have triumphed over me. Wow. Now there's a lot of stuff there. Just to summarize, Rabbi Eliezer, very conservative, um, had his ruling. He resisted the majority. The majority sided against him due to their idea that the majority rule is, uh, they were not convinced. They were not convinced by miracles even. They were not even convinced by a voice the from voice heaven because God. it was like, like. they're like, 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 no, the Torah is, God gave us the Torah and handed it off like a baton, gave us the keys, and now we have the authority to interpret the Torah, and not even a voice from God is going to trump what we're saying. Hmm. And when I first encountered this text 
10 years ago, I think. It must have been 10 years ago. I was on the side of Rabbi Eliezer. I'm like, duh, this is, that's right. Do what God wants. But mm-hmm. now I'm actually on the side of the majority because I realized the creativity and the power of retelling the story of the tradition and wrestling with the tradition um, and doing sort of what needs to get done no matter what they prevailed they even prevailed against god isn't that interesting they prevailed against, the rabbis prevailed against god they claimed the dignity to have that opinion and to implement it and that reminds me a lot of the genesis 32 account of jacob so this is jacob at the river jabbok and this angel of the Lord came and wrestled with Jacob all night, and then this angel could not defeat Jacob and dislocated his hip. And then this man said, let me go, for dawn is breaking. And then Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me, which is what queer people have to say all the time. I'm not going to let God go until you bless me. I'm not going to let the church go until you bless me. I'm not going to let you go until the, you bless me. And then the angel said, changed his name to Israel because he fought with God and prevailed, Mm. uh, prevailed over God. And I just want to name real quick that this is a story about the empowerment of someone with a disability. Like his disability didn't get fixed. He was dislocated. He was injured. And it's not like that, that got fixed, but he, and I don't also want to say he overcame his disability because that isn't really the right thing to say either but definitely there's a person with a disability who is a hero of mine i can say that at least mm. now let's talk a little bit more about this prevailing with god let me just pause and say what are your reactions to all of this i have so many questions man like and you know the most recent one being about your particular uh, interpretation of this story, siding with the rabbis, the majority over Eleazar now. And I just remember I'm reading that story and I'm just like, yeah, you get him, Eleazar. You show them what's what. Show them God is a God of miracles and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can see kind of the hero in Eleazar that way, but I can also see the way that you've interpreted things as well in that the majority has, for lack of a better word, outsmarted even God. And yeah. there is something to be said. For, for that, especially for people on the margins where people mm-hmm. may weaponize whatever they can against you, even God himself against you. And then you can ultimately, as the rabbis did, turn to the text, turn to the history and say, nope, this is this is the way things are. This is the way things are going to be. So mm-hmm. there's what a complex and beautiful story. Um, <laughs> like. I don't, I don't know that we'd have time for me to really parse all the feelings and questions I have wow. going on here. Um, there's just so much. We, we're going to have to make this story available for, for, uh, for the listeners because there's, I mean, mm-hmm. a whole exegesis waiting to happen here from a variety of hermeneutics. So I don't have any feelings is what I'm trying okay. to say that I okay. care to share because honestly, I'm still parsing them. I'm still trying to sort through what you just shared yeah i mean that's that's and this is the wrestle like we are god's people um we wrestle with the text we wrestle with the tradition yeah Uh, and i love going back to what dnc 42 says it says therefore he that lacketh wisdom let him ask of me and i will give him liberally and upbraid him not and then it's the next sentence that says lift up your hearts and rejoice for unto you the kingdom or in other words the keys of the church have been given Mm -hmm. i really think that asking god for wisdom and receiving it is in a sense prevailing with God. Absolutely. Right? Like verse 61 says, if if thou shalt ask, thou shalt receive revelation upon revelation, knowledge upon knowledge, that thou mayest know the mysteries and peaceable things, that which bringeth joy, that which bringeth life eternal. I think when we ask of God, we're claiming something of God. We're uh, mm-hmm. pre- seeking to prevail against God and seeking to get something from God. I think that's mm-hmm. really what God, God's not, um, God's not afraid of, of getting a little roughed up, right? God's, God can take it. God can handle it. God wants right. us to bring our fullest selves to God. And I think that's, um, that's where I want to go. So I want to say there's one more rabbinic text that I wanted to go to, and this is from the Middle Ages. Okay. This is a midrash from from this text called Eliyahu Zuta, chapter 2. And here's a parable. And this parable was given in a dispute over a Jew who accepted the written Torah but not the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is the recorded oral tradition. 
And she's like, I can get that the Torah is from God, but this, this stuff that you all made up, this oral tradition, that's not from God. And so here's the parable. A king of flesh and blood had two servants whom he loved completely. He gave each of them a measure of wheat and a bundle of flax. And flax is what we make linen out of. I don't know. If, I guess people know that. The wise one, what did he do? He wove the flax into a cloth and made flour from the wheat, sifted it, ground it, kneaded it and baked it and arranged it on the table, spread it upon the cloth and left it until the king returned. The foolish one did not do anything. Let me pause and say he probably just kept them safe, right? He just like, oh, I'm gonna keep them exactly the way God, uh, the way the king gave them to us. Mm -hmm. After a time, the king returned to his house and said to them, my sons, bring me what I gave you. One brought out the table set with the bread and the cloth spread upon it, and the other brought the wheat in a basket and a bundle of flax with it. Oh, what an embarrassment. Oh, what a disgrace. Which do you think was mo most beloved? The one who brought the table with the bread upon it. Similarly, when God gave the Torah to Israel, God gave it as wheat from which to make flour and flax from which to make clothing through the rules of interpretation. Hmm. Now, this is a very similar to the parable of the talents in verse 25, yeah. uh, uh, in Matthew chapter 25, where this, um, this dude goes on a journey and actually hands over. And that's what this keys is all about, is he left. He mm -hmm. left us in charge, right? Right. And this is going back to the oven of Achnai, like God left us in charge. Like, we're, we're, we've got it now. And this gets back into... Um, crash theory and I just want to I don't, probably shouldn't go into the whole thing about crash theory due to time but basically crash theory is about um, when there's a crash in any master story there's three and only three options. Option one you fortify artificially the master story with walls and fences and don't, don't even let the crash in. Ignore the crash and just uh, this is basically the closet for queer people just pretend you're not gay. Right. Option two is to leave your master story and jump off into a new master story. Option three, and this is the hard one, the, the one that very, very few people go, is to go through the crash and retell your master story in light of the crash and see what works in your retelling to answer those big questions that the master story was answering. And Rabbi B'nai Lappi says that the, the, the Jews of the Talmud, the rabbinic Jews, were option three Jews. Yeah, they had the Torah that they received, but then they just totally made stuff up. And it's a sort of a celebration of their ingenuity and their subjectivity and their learnedness that they're able to create a way of doing what they feel in their conscience is the right thing to do. And that really is a queer thinking because it's it's coming from the margins. It's not coming from sort of the the temple institution. Now the temple was destroyed and, and that's the crash, right? I don't even mm -hmm. know if I remember mentioned that. But the temple was destroyed in 70 of the Common Era, and that was the technology. That's how Jews accessed God mm. before, uh, th throughout the Israelite, uh, the biblical Israelite religion. And then the rabbis are like, whoops, I mean, we don't have a temple anymore, and let's just do this differently. And they totally creatively created a new thing and said it was the same thing. And I think that's cool. And, and people say, well, well, that's awful that they made it up. And I'm like, all of religion is made up. That's why it's called religion. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right? Um, and I think that we, we should have the courage to do the same, to say, look, we've been given this tradition. We need to invest it. We need to work it. We need to do the best we can with it. And we're not bound by somewhat something that someone said a long time ago where they don't bear the cost for this or where they don't know what situation we're in um, or even if someone presents God against us we need to have the dignities to say look nope nope and uh, and that's kind of where I should end it because I've talked a lot about this already <laughs> well thank you man that was a 
I mean, first of all, two beautiful stories and parables uh, that you shared with us and uh, a lot to consider. There's a lot to wrestle with there and a lot of beauty uh, in those stories. So thank you for sharing those. I, I know I got a lot to think about myself. And, uh, you know, honestly, I'm still sitting with a lot mm -hmm. of it. So, uh, again, thank you for sharing that. And uh, I, I actually do hope we get to revisit these again in our discussion, yeah. either of, you know, these particular texts or, you know, some other principles that are going to allow us to bring these mm -hmm. back in. I like how you always find a reason to talk about crash theory, but it's also always <laughs> relevant. Uh, yeah. But, you know. I'm sure we're going to find another reason to discuss, uh, particularly this parable that you shared of, uh, you know, the wheat and the bread and mm -hmm. ultimately creating something with what the Lord has given us, you know, to begin with, what he's given us authority yeah. to deal with to begin with. And that's why the text intimately connects with the keys, the, the keys with life and rejoicing. Like, mm -hmm. yes, this has been delegated to us. The stewardship has been given to us so that it can be life-giving and so that we can rejoice. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a great tradition there that we can tap into because if we're using the keys to har harm people, that's not life-giving, that's not rejoicing. Right. The keys have been handed over to us. We're in the driver's seat. God's hand, hands, God is hands off in a sense. And we've gotta do the right thing by, by LGBT folks. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great note to end on, my friend. So uh, if there's nothing else, let nope, us go Nope, that's ahead. it. All right, cool. Then let us go ahead and uh, move into some housekeeping items before we do. Wanted to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. The last two at BTB LDS. Also, special thanks to uh, our collaborators, especially our new ones that have joined us this week. If you're looking to be part of our collaborator community, uh, you can do that by uh, either offering a donation or some kind of contribution via glow.fm slash beyond the block. That's G-L-O-W dot F-M slash beyond the block. Or you can simply share our content, let us know about it, and you can be part of our community that way as well. We want to make it as accessible as, uh, as we can for people who would like to be part of our community in some way, especially contributing directly to our content. Uh, the ideas that we have for the show, contributing feedback and uh, other content uh, that we have, content ideas, I should say, rather, that we have for Beyond the Block. Mm -hmm. um, special thanks as well to uh, Tamara Kemsley for handling our audio editing, as well as David Doyle for handling our transcripts. Thank you guys for joining us till we meet again next week. I look forward to continuing the conversation next week. Bye, everyone. <laughs>